for ministering in music. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your grace. Your grace provides salvation. Your grace is at work in our lives. And as we interact with a portion of Mark's gospel this morning, we want to be responding to your grace in your word, both living and written, both in Christ and scripture. We want to be those that are doing your word, not hearing only. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. A couple of questions for you to think about. What does it mean to be a member of Christ's family? What does it mean? What is involved in being a member of Christ's family? Are you a member of Christ's family? As I study some portions portions of Scripture, I say I get my cage rattled sometimes. It really makes me step back and think. And as I studied Mark chapter 3 months and months ago, and then did some study a couple weeks ago. I was forced again this week to reread and reread the passage and think and consider it again. Because when Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother, just really had to step back and think, what is involved in that and what does that mean? Let's take our Bibles as we discuss the latter part of chapter 3, and read together verses 20 through 35 to see the flow of the context, the flow of the passage. In Mark chapter 3, and I'll begin reading with verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus, or Jesus' mother and brothers, arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. 
who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, as we think about Mark chapter 3, please keep in mind that in Mark 1, 1 through 20, Mark clearly communicated the being of Jesus. He is unique. He's one of a kind. He is the good news. He's a person. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is God's son. His father was pleased with him. There was a yieldingness to the Spirit of God in his day-by-day living. He was able to resist Satan when he was tempted. He also is intimately related to the kingdom of God. That's who Christ is in terms of his being, his character, his identity. Then Mark 1, 21 through 3, 12, display Jesus and his being. That is, his being is displayed in his action. He taught with authority and commanded evil spirits to come out. He displayed authority over sickness and over demons. He forgives sins, thus displaying he is a son of God. He knew what the teachers of the law were thinking. The healing of the paralytic showed that he had authority to forgive sins. He had authority to call Levi, who was a tax collector, to follow him and to have a feast at his house. He's the new wine. He had authority over the Sabbath. That's who Christ is. And when we come to Mark chapter 3, we find that Jesus and his disciples entered a house and people are so crowded around him that they can't even eat. And his family comes to take charge of him because they say he's crazy, he's out of his mind. And then interrupted in that passage is the teachers of the law apparently arrived before Jesus' mother and his brothers and they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebub, driving out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus responds and says, if I drive out demons by demons, I'm against myself, or that house is against itself. It can't be true. And we know that they were accusing him of driving out demons by an evil spirit rather than the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Then, after Jesus responds to them, Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. Immediately after responding to the teachers of the law, who were not sensitive to him, who did not understand who he was, Jesus responds to his mothers and brothers who did not understand who he was either. Because just as the teachers of the law had their own thinking in mind, Jesus' mother and brothers had their own thinking in mind. Remember, they came to him to take charge of him because they thought he was out of his mind. That was already stated earlier in the context. But Jesus was walking in sensitivity to the Spirit of God and had in mind the things of God, his Father. But his family, his mother and his brothers, were concerned about themselves. 
So what happens? Jesus' mother and brothers arrive, standing outside. They weren't able to get in. Standing outside, they send someone in to call to him. So they couldn't get in themselves. Send someone in to call to him to give a message. And what is the message? Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. His mother, his brothers are looking for Jesus. Why? They want to take him home. He's out of his mind. They want to rescue him from his craziness. R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, and I quote, Picture the scene with me. Jesus was back in Capernaum where he had performed so many miracles, where the crowds had been so intense that some have even torn a hole in the neighbor's roof to get to him. And now even greater crowds, attracted by his subsequent miracles and his words, no man ever spoke as Jesus did, were pressing in on him. The pressing multitude was a desperate mixture. At the center were the newly chosen apostles, the twelve, admiringly hanging on Jesus' every word. In contrast to these eager faces, there leered in the press the pain vestiges of the scribes, also turning over his every syllable, having just accused. That is, accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. Some in the multitude were eager, some ecstatic, some quizzing, some perplexed, and some livid and blasphemous. Every extreme was represented from the nationalist zealots to the collaborist tax collectors, from ignorant fishermen to the trained intelligentsia, end of quote. How does Jesus respond when he is informed of the message? Who are my mother and my brothers? That seems like a strange question. He was just told, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He asks the question. He also answers it. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. Those who are seated around him, the 12, according to Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, 40 through, 46 through 50, would have been involved. Those seated around him, and he says, they're my mother, brothers, and sisters. It's interesting, he says, whoever does God's will. Doing God's will simply means to perform, to execute, to accomplish. Doing implies hearing it and then acting on it. Now think about this statement. He's been told that his brothers, his mother, is outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he responds with, whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Mary 
and his brothers had concluded that he was out of his mind. They're coming to take charge of him. And now on top of it, he says, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do my will or my father's will. When Mary heard that, when the brothers heard that, he says his mother, his sister, his brother are those who do his father's will. Weren't they doing God's will and wanting to come and take Jesus thinking he is crazy? No, they were not. In the Hebrew culture at that time, where the family was so sacred, this was a shocking message. Possibly there was a murmur of amazement swept through the multitude. Mary, who had nursed Jesus, who had loved him into manhood, and has come to him what she thought was loving concern, was she crushed? The text doesn't say. His brothers were probably shocked and maybe angered. He's her brother, and he's not even acknowledging us as his brother. He says... Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. What Jesus did not mean, he was not severing family ties. You study the flow of Scripture and the Gospels. Because as he hung on the cross, he made provision for his mother in John 19. His brother James became a devout follower of Christ and a martyr. Jesus held parenthood very high and hit pretty hard those who did not take care of family. Give you a little idea of what I think Jesus meant and comment more on it in a little. There is a deeper kinship than flesh and blood. It's a spiritual kinship which is characterized by obedience to the Father. There's a new family that is superior, in a sense, to human family, for it is eternal. Its ties are far stronger. It is far more satisfying and far more demanding. Jesus is not doing away with the blood family. Just as he called the 12 earlier in Mark chapter 3, he established a new group that was different than anything the Jews knew. Here he's establishing what I think is a new group, the body of Christ, the seeds of the body of Christ being established with obedience being the key to experiencing family. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks about the fact that he obeyed his Father's will. In Matthew, as he is praying before going to the cross, he says, if it's possible, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was submissive to his Father, obeying his Father. Jesus is in his right mind. He knows what he is doing. He buys up the opportunity to communicate a challenging lesson, truth. He's not controlled by his family. 
even though they think he's crazy and they came to take charge of him. He is not controlled by those who assume that he was casting out demons by the prince of demons. Rather, he is controlled by the Holy Spirit, by his Father, in saying, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What's the point of this passage? Jesus had the authority. to take family ties and the definition of family to a new level. As God's son, he can make this change and challenge religious leaders. As I studied this passage and I saw the overflow of Mark, or the, the general picture of Mark, I again ask, what is Jesus really saying? To understand Mark 3, 34 and 35, I think we must understand that the 12 apostles had some insight, I'll say some insight, into the identity, being, and character of Jesus. Some they didn't grasp it anywhere near fully. But they would have grasped in some way that he was the Son of God, that he was the good news, that he was the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is able to resist Satan. He's the one who can cast, or uh, teaches with authority. He's the one who can cast out demons. He's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. He's the one who reads minds or understands what someone is thinking. He's a compassionate man that displayed towards tax collectors and sinners. And he's Lord of the Sabbath. I think we need to understand that the 12 had some insight into who Jesus was. I think we need to understand also that the delight, the joy, the satisfaction of Jesus was totally and completely in his Father. The joy, the delight, the satisfaction of Jesus was in his Father. He and his Father were one. They communed with one another. What the Father knew, the Son knew. What the Son knew, the Father knew. They delighted in one another. He was not controlled by people, namely his family. He was not controlled by religious leaders. He was not controlled by the need need to prove himself. Well, I got to prove him. I'm a son of God. He didn't have to do that. He was not controlled by a desire for acceptance. He didn't have to have his family's acceptance or the acceptance of the religious leaders. His father was his satisfaction. Thus, he did his father's will, not the selfish will of his mother, his brothers, or the religious leaders. I think also we need to realize that the twelve left all to follow Jesus, to be with him because they were convinced he was who he claimed to be. He, Christ, became their delight their joy, their identity. They valued him above fish, tax collecting, and family. Jesus was their treasure. 
Remember, he called them and they left. He came before everything and everyone else. He was central. No one and nothing else owned them. At points in time, it did. But that's where they were moving. They were in relationship with Jesus. I think we must also understand that the 12 apostles knew Jesus desired for them to be with him. To send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. This was God's will for them. They were doing God's will. So when Jesus says, or rather he looked at those seated around him, looking at the 12, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. They had left all to follow him. He was becoming their delight, their joy, their life. Their doing was springing from a growing knowing of Jesus and his character, his identity, his being. Again, this comes from the text overflow of Mark. Understand that Jesus' mother and brothers were concerned about themselves since they wanted to take charge of Jesus. In taking charge of Jesus, they would take him away from his father's will. Their lives were centered in themselves. They, mother and brothers, are selfish, stand in sharp contrast to the twelve who surrendered to Jesus. Here we have Jesus' family, his brothers, his mother, coming to take charge of him, take him away from his father's will, and then he looks around him and says, here's my mother, my sister, my brother, referring to the twelve who are following him. The family spoken of in this context is not blood, natural, but spiritual. Jesus establishes another family, and I think the seeds of Christ in the church in so doing. He does not do away with the natural family. He is establishing, beginning to establish something new. Therefore, to be a brother, sister, or mother of Jesus, one must be in relationship with him. Willingness to take Jesus as the ultimate, complete delight, treasure, satisfaction, and then that being displayed or evidenced by doing God's will. Jesus is valued above all else. More highly than blood relationships. He's speaking to a crowd saying, my family, my sister, my mother, my brother are those who do the will of God. And he's speaking about the 12. And again, the flow of Mark makes it clear that the 12 had some understanding of who he was. The person is free because he's living in the severe for which he or she was created in relationship with God. 
with Christ being once joy, delight, treasure. Christ being the delight of the twelve, the joy of the twelve, the treasure of the twelve. Remember, relationship with Jesus, thus the relationship with the body of Christ, come before and are foundational to the blood or natural family relationships. Anything less is idolatry. Finding satisfaction in a natural or blood family rather than in Christ and the body of Christ. We end up using them. My joy, our joy, our satisfaction, our treasure, our value is to be found in Jesus Christ. Not in my wife, not in my children, not in my grandchildren. I may value them. I may treasure them. But the ultimate is in Christ. And in that context, R. Kent Hughes has a quote, and it's fairly lengthy. But there is, especially among Christians, another reason why the family is in trouble. It's worship. In a valiant effort to stem the tide, many Christians and non-Christians alike have made the family everything. Every moment of every day, every involvement, every commitment, every engagement is measured and judged by the question, how will this benefit my family? While this is generally commendable, it can degenerate into a family narcissism. The four walls of the home become a temple, and only within And for those four walls aren't any sacrifices made. Thus we commit domestic idolatry. This is an intense tragedy. The tragedy is every earthly loyalty, if it is made central, becomes idolatry. And all idolatries eventually destroy their worshipers. This is true. Or rather, the truth is, many of the psychological problems in our families can be traced to parents whose affections bind rather than release and liberate. Avoiding the permissive destruction which is ravishing our society, some parents penetrate a possessive destruction which is equally devastating. Jesus warned about this when he said, Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What can we do to preserve and elevate our families? The answer begins with the family putting love and obedience to Christ above everything else. What does this mean? For example, none of us can love our spouses as they ought to be loved. Only Christ can do that. However, we love because he first loved us. This way we would love him and others as we respond to his love. Most of us need to be better lovers. But being a better lover begins with, for the believer, by loving him. Christ must be first. The same is true for our children. Making them everything will not enable us to love them as we ought or make it possible for them to love us as they ought. We must love and obey God first. Anything less is idolatry. Our children must also love and obey God. When our children come to Christ, there's a fellowship with them that transcends and eternalizes earthly kingship. 
2,000 years ago, when Jesus gave the startling answer, he shocked his mother and brothers and all who heard him. The shock waves have reverberated down through the centuries. But it has been a therapeutic shock. For it teaches us that when we obey him, we enjoy the blessed sense of being family with his devoted children here. This loving obedience in him is also the key to our earthly families. For when we please him first, we can love our wives, our husbands, our children, and our parents as they ought to be loved. End of quote. A couple hard questions as we wrap it up. Is your joy, is your delight, is your satisfaction found in Jesus alone and evidenced by doing his will 24-7? Is Jesus alone your joy, your delight, your value? That's a hard question. Or is it job? Or is it school? Or is it family? Or is it money? Is Jesus alone our joy, our delight, our satisfaction? The 12 were coming to that point in their lives. What do you value? In what do you find contentment? God has given us so much to enjoy, but our ultimate joy and contentment is to be in Christ. Why would Jesus say, here are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does God's will is my mother, sister, and, or brother, sister, and mother. Because his family, earthly family, was not desiring God's will for him at this point in time. They were trying to pull him away from that. The 12 had left all to follow him. Does our concern and our brokenness over people and things indicate that we may have drifted from finding contentment in Christ or that we may not be a brother, sister, or mother of Jesus? An example, so broken over family, their rejection, their sin, or whatever else may be, that we can't function well. I just can't go on. My family blew it. One of my kids is really messed up. My parents are messed up. I can't go on. Christ is our joy. He's what we value. He is our satisfaction. He enables us to go on, maybe with deep pain and hurt, but he's our life. must have our toys, a computer, an iPod, a TV, and so on. How would your life be if for the next six months you had no computer, no phone, no computer games, no TV? You say, be miserable. Where's your satisfaction? I'm not knocking those items in any way. 
But is that where we're finding our joy and satisfaction? Is that what we value? Or are we valuing Christ? The day after I totaled my Chevelle, I went down to look at my Chevelle and I cried. And God spoke to me and said, Dan, you're idle. And I had to say, yes, God, that was my idol. If something were to happen to Ruth Ann and she were to pass from the scene in the next couple of weeks, could I go on saying, God is my all, he's my joy, he's my satisfaction, he's my sufficiency? Oh, hurt, because the one I love dearly and the one who loves me dearly is gone. But it's in Christ. Does our concern and brokenness over people show that maybe we place too much value in our mate, our children, or our grandchildren? Just asking. Or are worrying and fretting about the future? A couple of times I heard brief news things this weekend. You know, some would say we're maybe we're entering another recession. So if the recession costs you half of your retirement, can you go to bed tonight content because you have Jesus? He's your value. What you value, he's your worth. He's your contentment. When Jesus says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother or my brother, my sister, my mother. That's a hard saying. But it's springing from who he is, what he has done, and the 12 choosing to follow him. His family, his blood family, wanting to get him out of God's will. His Father's will. Where are you in terms of God's family? Are you part of His family? And as you go to your job, as you go to school, as you relate to your blood family, as you pay your bills, as you go shopping, is Christ your all? so that he is reflected in how you work, how you shop, how you go to school. Let's pause in a moment of silence.